All right, I want to start with a story. Um, uh, quite a few years ago now, I think it was 2012, so like seven years ago, uh, my mum turned 60. And as a surprise, my, um, my dad organised with all of the extended kind of our, his children, so my brothers and sisters and, our, and the grandkids, so my kids, uh, so this is before Theodore was born, uh, to go to Paris. So he paid for it because we're all poor. Uh, to go to Paris and surprised my mum for her 60th birthday in Paris, which was pretty cool uh, and pretty amazing. And I was very worried my mum would have a heart attack and that would just be the end of it all. Thankfully, she didn't. And we had a really wonderful time. Uh, Gideon turned one in Positano on the Amalfi Coast. So that was pretty cool. Uh, so we were doing a whole bunch of cool stuff. We went to museums, which is a nightmare. Don't go to Europe with a um, almost three-year-old and a, a one-year-old. Super uncool. Um, very exhausting. Anyway, so we went to this museum called... Um, um, Musée d'Orsay, I think it's in Paris, it's not in Rome, it's in Paris, I think. And in the museum, it's full of like these amazing, like it's not like, I don't want to diss the, the Australian art scene, but it's like when you go to a, a gallery in Paris, it's all of like these incredible like Chippendale furniture and, and, um, and like um, Van Gogh's and like just the stuff, you know, like it's around the corner from the Louvre and like there's just all sorts of amazing stuff there. Uh, so we were next to the Vincent van Gogh collection and there was this sculpture and the sculpture was uh, like a bronze bust, had no arms, it had no legs, it had no head. Uh, no, it may have had a head. It had no arms and no legs, it didn't, uh, but it did have a head. And I turned to Ariella, who was not even three yet. I turned to Ariella and I said, Ari, what is missing from this sculpture? And she, in her, you know, great contemplation, after a short while, she said, Pants! <laughs> Uh, so that's my first funny story. The second one is not my story. Uh, it's a made-up story, I suspect, but I, I want to share it as well because I think it's very funny. Uh, and it's of a family uh, of, you know, very good uh, religious folk. And they're, and they're driving and they get lost uh, on their way to somewhere. And as they're going along, uh, the father sees a sign and it says, you know, uh, naturalist resort. And he's like, oh, no. Uh, so he's driving past and then this, um, this family rides past on their bikes and they're all completely naked. And he's and the father is scandalized and the mother is scandalized. And the kids uh, are, well, you know, the kids are probably more amused than scandalized. And they've continued on. And the, and the dad's just thinking, please, I hope the kids don't say anything. Just don't say anything. Just don't say anything. Um, and from the back seat, he hears, he hears his daughter and she, and she says, Daddy. And he says, oh, yes. They weren't wearing helmets. Is it because we see things really differently? Our perspective, our experience, our uh, journey, the things that we, the baggage that we accumulate over our lives, they shape the way that we see the world. Uh, so no pants and no helmets, they were the critical things for, for the children, whereas the adults, you know, we see things differently because we have a different set of experiences, a different kind of centre that we see things from. Our individual perspective shapes our experience. So the generation that we are a part of. Who here thinks that our generation sees home ownership differently to our parents' generation or their parents' generation? Hell yes. Uh, or, you know, like, so there are things that we clearly as a generation um, see differently to the generations that came before us. The generation that we come from, the culture that we are a part of, even our level of education or our affluence. Uh, the experiences that we have and the environments and ideas that we are exposed to, especially as children, 
Uh, these things change how we see the world. So much so that our brains literally distort reality to fit with our beliefs. We literally see what we are expecting to see. We, uh, and I could put up a whole bunch of silly kind of pictures and uh, puzzles uh, on the projector. Maybe we can do that afterwards. Where you see a certain thing, but another person might see a different thing. Like that stupid golden, what were the colours? The white and gold dress. It's just a perception <laughs> thing. Or, you know, the one uh, where you, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it, but I'll spoil it anyway. Like where you, with the gorilla, where you see the gorilla come in um, when you're counting the, the passes from the, the team. Or you don't see the gorilla because you're so focused on one thing, you can't see the other. So our, our perception, and we distort reality to fit with what we expect or what we um, desire or what we, uh, how we want to see the world. It, it completely changes uh, what two different individuals would see. Now, undoubtedly, I have adopted views that have been given to me and I haven't even been aware of how carefully other people have laboured so that I would hold those views. I do it to my children. I condition my children. We all, we all have had this experience. We, I try to create an environment where they will behave a certain way, where they will learn a certain thing, where they will... Because I don't want them to... You know, like if I grew up in an environment with lots of racism, it's, I would probably pass that on to my children. Thankfully, I didn't. And I don't pass that on to my children. So they're not exposed to that racism. So it's not something that they adopt. They don't naturally have that inside of them. But there are lots and lots of things through the media and through our experiences and through our culture that we are given, that we adopt as the way we see the world. And many people, and rightly so, would argue that, re- uh, that religion represents this type of conditioning. But it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. It's very unlikely that if you grew up in a Muslim-majority nation that you would grow up believing in Jesus. The environment that you're in definitely has a bearing on how you see the world and what you believe. Which is why it's really important that we... As adults, honestly and critically evaluate the things that we've been given and say, is this true? So having a measure of question or even a measure of doubt uh, is a reasonable, mature thing to do as an adult to say, I want to make sure that what I believe is true. Now, Jesus had this problem. All of his disciples had grown up in a particular culture and in a particular time in history that meant that they were conditioned to believe that a Messiah would come and that that Messiah would overthrow the the imperial rule and establish a new Jewish kingdom of Israel that would rule over everyone. That's the conditioning that they received. That's all they could. So for them, Messiah meant violent rebellion. In their mind, they were like, they wanted to do like the Justice Maccabee thing. You know, they wanted to recreate a new order where they were finally in charge. They were convinced of a violent Messiah. You know, in Luke 9:54. so this is a time where Jesus has already been healing the sick and meeting the needs of the poor and feeding those who are hungry and doing all of these compassionate, beautiful miracles. Uh, But then James and John literally say, well, these guys didn't really um, make room for you, Jesus. Shall we call fire from heaven and destroy them? Because they were like, this this is something Elijah did, so why not? That's, That's what happens when the Messiah turns up. We finally get to smash our enemies. And now we would love to do that. That would be super cool. 
They had a perception that they'd been given and a culture that they marinated in and it was the only way they could see the world. And Jesus rebukes them. He just outright rebukes them. And I can just imagine Jesus thinking, how dumb are you? How, how, how can you look at the way that I have treated people and then think that it is even remotely consistent with that to go and kill people, even if you perceive them to be your enemies? Lots of the teaching that Jesus brought was him just saying to them, your cultural conditioning and your religious conditioning isn't right. I have a new way for you. Which is why we find Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. So this is something long ago that has been said to those Israelite people that they have perpetuated, that they've even added to, that they've manipulated, that they have changed to to suit their circumstances. Long ago, you were told this. Don't murder people. Seems like a pretty good rule. Don't murder people. But Jesus then says, but I tell you that even expressing anger to your brother is wrong. The conditioning you received, the rule that you received, what you were told, not enough. I'm going further than that. So he tries to change their perspective. He tries to make it clear to them that even holding malice in their heart or cursing their brother is just as bad as actively attacking their brother. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't commit adultery, another good rule. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, we have Jesus setting up the standard of their cultural expectation for good religious behavior and saying, no, we need to do better than this. Do not broken oath, but keep oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. You see, what would happen is people would find nice loopholes to not really tell the truth. And he says, just like your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't come up with cross my heart and hope to die and stick a needle in my eye. Don't pinky swear. Don't have to do all of these ridiculous things. Just be honest. But they had grown up in a culture where you could develop a ritual where you were allowed to, you know, you would swear by the altar, but, or you would swear by this, or you would swear by that. Or, and there was like varying degrees of how much you had to keep your word. And Jesus just says, no, what a, what a dumb way to look at it. Just make your yes your yes and your no your no. And love your enemy, uh, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've heard. And this is kind of the big sticking point for Jesus. You have heard that we are meant to hate our enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. And then he makes this declaration. He says, that way you'll be children of my father in heaven. I've, I've talked about this a few times in the last little while. Like when Jesus makes qualifiers for what it is to be in his kingdom that have nothing to do with all the things that we have been conditioned to believe they are. Because I don't know about you, but I I grew up with the whole confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart and you'll be saved. Like that there was, you know, the Roman road and that there was these different processes. whatever. There's all these steps to salvation. But Jesus keeps messing that up. When he's like, did you clothe those people who were naked? Did you feed those people who were hungry? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Uh, and then come with me into eternal life. But to those of you who didn't do this, this is the sheep and the goats, um, away to eternal damnation. This is, Jesus says, how you treat the poor, that's what it is. And then again here he says, if you love your enemies, that's how you get to be sons of my father in heaven. Jesus, by all objective standards, has terrible theology when it comes to salvation. But thankfully, I'm a Christian. So I'm going to place significant weight on what Jesus has to say here. 
And I'm going to say to myself, am I loving my enemies and praying for my enemies? And am I caring for those who are naked and those who are imprisoned? And am I caring for those who are foreigners and refugees? Because that seems to be the things that Jesus cares about. Because I have told you this other thing that we grew up with, that we embraced as the absolute truth. But maybe there's more nuance to it than that. Maybe there's something slightly broader than what we have been gifted. And it is a gift. Nobody is born understanding Christianity. It is a learnt faith. It is something that has been handed to us, but just because it was handed to us doesn't mean that everything that was given to us was right. When I look through the history of the church, I see all sorts of things that we collectively over thousands of years now have come to a different place and said, you know what, maybe, maybe we need to do better. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Israelite people in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you need to do better here. You have heard this, but I tell you this. And the most scandalous part here is that Jesus, he doesn't just quote the tradition of the elders. He literally quotes the scriptures and then supersedes them. So when I quote the scriptures, I do it to give authority to my words. I say, you should trust me because this is what the Bible says. But Jesus doesn't do that. He quotes from the scriptures and then he claims authority over the scriptures. He says, here's what the Bible says and I'm telling you it's not enough. He has authority over the scriptures. He is making a claim to his divinity even here. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's nature. So we have to start and finish with him if we're ever going to know God. This is what Jesus says in John 14, 9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews 1, um, we have uh, in verse 3, it just says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So anytime I have any confusion what God is like, I go and I look at the exact representation of his being. Because I, I have a whole bunch of stuff about God that I'm not sure about in the scriptures and a whole bunch of stuff about Jesus that seems pretty clear that I can be sure about. And he is the exact representation of God. So after Jesus uh, dies on the cross and he is resurrected, um, he comes to his disciples. Uh, and this is in Acts 1.6. It says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they're super dumb. He's like, I spent my whole ministry saying you should love your enemies. I spent my... I said, I'm, I'm literally hanging on a cross saying, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And I come back and you guys are like, when are we going to kick their ass? When are we going to call the fire from heaven? At this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to overthrow those dirty, rotten Romans? Are you going to destroy the, the people that would uh, oppress us so that we can be in charge finally? And I think Jesus, he just hangs his head in his hands. And that's what he says. He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, to, uh, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, even after his death, the disciples couldn't see the different perspective that Jesus was offering. They were so conditioned with a violent Messiah that they just couldn't see beyond that. So Jesus just says to them, don't worry about that. Worry about being witnesses to the end of the earth. You don't, you don't worry about, you let God worry about the violent Messiah stuff. 
And, and you guys go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth and be witnesses to what I have told you, to everything I have commanded you. Love your enemies. Don't be a murderer. Actually love uh, those people who you would, you know, don't have violence in your heart and don't have lust in your heart. And uh, So Jesus says, go and be a witness to what I have shown you and let God worry about the rest. He wanted them to have a, a new, fresh perspective, a new revelation of what it was that he was about. Because the old one that they had wasn't working. The world had such a wrong perspective of God that God sent his son to come as a living testimony and example to help us to change our view, to help us to see things differently. But even now, there are so many people in the church who are just waiting for Jesus to come back in violent judgment. They're still waiting for a warrior Messiah. They sit around and, and they do their religious huddle and they're desperate for the end of the world. They're desperate for the violence of revelation, which is not actually all that violent at all. Jesus comes back covered in his own blood with a sword coming out his mouth because it's his word that is powerful, that it's his word that breaks down strongholds. And then instead of being a roaring lion, he turns into a slain lamb. You see, Jesus sets the example. It's not a violent end of the world destruction and judgment. It's, a, it's him coming back to, to bring about the goodness and transform all of the brokenness that we have into something beautiful. The world had such a wrong perspective of God that Jesus came as a living testimony to help us shift our view. And that's what revelation should be. The revelation from heaven that we need to receive when, when we are seeking to understand God's heart is a change of perspective that then follows in transformation in our behaviour. We have to see things differently. Being a follower of Jesus has to make you see things differently. It has to make you see people differently. It has to make you see your money differently. It has to make you see the environment differently. Even your own life differently. So last week what I talked about was how Jesus actually saw poor people. Because even in his day, the poor were just this ignored kind of group that you would walk past on the, on the street. The poor were not something that you gave a damn about. They didn't even have a social welfare system to care about the poor like we do. But Jesus saw the poor. They weren't just an inconvenience to him. He said, but it wasn't just the poor that Jesus saw differently. So this is the scripture I want to read from, his, from Luke 7 today uh, about how Jesus sees other people differently as well. This is from Luke 7, 36 to, um, and, and onwards. It just says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I just want to stop there just uh, for one moment and, and make a moment and take a few um, seconds here. See, the Pharisee, he said to himself, I don't know if he muttered under his breath or he just thought it in his head, uh, but it's kind of creepy because he's not trying to say to Jesus, gee, if you knew that that was a, who this bloody woman was, but then Jesus answers him. Jesus knows what's going on inside this guy's heart. Jesus responds to the nonsense because as it turns out, Jesus is a prophet. So the accusation that this guy has is one that Jesus is very, very uh, um, safe to, to meet and, and respond to. Uh, so then he turns to Simon and he says, do you see this woman? Which seems like an absolutely silly question. Clearly Simon can see the woman. He's sitting there fuming uh, about this disgusting woman in his house who shouldn't be here. This silly woman who has spoiled the meal that we were going to have. This disgusting woman who has touched you with her filthy hands and smeared ointment on you and, and washed you with her hair. And this whore who has come in here and just destroyed everything. How dare she even be in my home? If you were a prophet, you would know what this is doing, how unclean this is. And Jesus hears all of this going on inside of this man. And, and he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this person here? Do you see this human being here? Not just this thing that we dismiss, not just this, this sinful braggart who has come in to spoil your room. She's not a piece of me. He said, but a religious hypocrite so often can't actually see the human being. It's do you see this drug addict or this homeless person or this, uh, this, you know, this, this, this gay person or this uh, whatever it is. Do you see, oh yeah, he's just an alcoholic. If I, if I try to help him, he's just going to go. And do you see what, all they see is, is the, the sin inside of their own heart projected onto that person instead of seeing a real human being in, in need in front of them. Religious hypocrites don't see people. And the history of the church in our country, I don't even want to begin to talk about the, the way that the church has behaved in other countries, but the history of the church in our country is burdened by the stories of abused children who went unseen, who we said, oh, we don't believe you. It is, it is burdened by the, the, um, the stories of battered wives who were told to submit to their husbands, who were just told, no, no, you just have to tolerate that. You need to submit to that. We are burdened by all the people that we have shunned and excluded from our fellowship because we have labelled them instead of loved them. The most religious people are often the ones who just don't see other people the way that God sees them. And when we uh, make a huge public stand to fight for our own religious freedoms, but then we fail to use our freedom to petition for the poor and the marginalised and the refugees, we are no better than this Pharisee. When we only give a crap about our own clean home and nice meals and we don't give a crap about the woman who is broken and the children who is abused and the people who are locked up in asylum, that makes us as bad as this Pharisee. And Jesus says, do you see those people who are locked up and do you see those people who are hungry and do you see those people who are imprisoned and naked and do you see them? Because it's when you meet their needs. It's when you pour your love and your heart and your resource and your effort and everything you have to meet the needs of the least of these. You have done it for me. 
And he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Because I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. See, Jesus singles out her hair and her kisses and her perfume, all the things that would single her out as a prostitute. All the things that the Pharisee sees as part of his legal case to refuse this woman the grace of God. Jesus is able to turn all of those things into instruments of worship. And again and again, even the woman caught at the well, uh, when Jesus speaks with her and he says, I know everything about you. All the things that everybody else uses to heap shame and guilt and condemnation and to keep her separate and excluded and not a part of community. All of those things. Jesus says, I see all of those things and I accept you anyway. I know all those things about you and you are welcome anyway. I have living water for you. See, all the things that we see and that we use to exclude other people. Oh, you're an economic migrant, not a real person running from suffering. Oh, you're just a, a, a drunkard. That's why you're living on the street. Oh, you're just this. All the things that we see as the reasons to exclude. Jesus says, I know all of that and I welcome you. I love you. I embrace you. And under the law, touching, having this woman touch him would defile him. It would make him unclean. But Jesus supersedes the law. So instead of him becoming unclean in this act, this woman becomes clean. When Jesus is touched by lepers, they become healed. His kingdom comes and it is near to them, so much so that they are radically transformed by his very presence. The acceptance and the love, the witness, the example, the very radiance of the glory of God comes into that place through Christ and they are healed, they are restored, they are forgiven. Jesus supersedes all of the religious nonsense and baggage that has been accumulated over thousands of years of of gathering together. And he just says, I love and I love and I love and I forgive and I forgive and I forgive. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, when we separate ourselves from people, we think that we are above. We think that we are better. We think that we are clean and that going near them will make us unclean. When in reality, we are unclean. And it's when we come to our own sense of brokenness and that we can then receive that forgiveness and that we can express that love. Despite every cultural barrier, despite every religious rule, despite every uh, societal standard and social contract, Jesus creates an environment where this marginalised woman feels safe, honoured and welcome. Even in the presence of her enemies, in in the Pharisee's house where she is judged and condemned and unclean, she feels safe and welcome. That's the Jesus that I know. And that he represents the father that I know. A good father who loves his children. And that's the kind of home that a church should be. Not a home where people come and they are condemned and judged and pushed aside and said that they're unclean, where a prophet would know what they're really like, but where a prophet does know what they're like and says, you're welcome anyway. Where we completely, fully, with complete understanding say, yes, you come with baggage and we love you anyway. You don't need to hide. You don't need to live in shame or guilt or condemnation. You come and we will love you anyway. We should be finding ways to make the most marginalised people know that they are welcome, that they can be forgiven and that we love them just as their father in heaven loves them. 
But sadly, instead of experiencing this radical love from Christian community, all too often religious folk behave in a way that says, I'm disgusted that these people would dare to even enter our churches. Just like the Jews who had a a, a fence around the temple that literally said, "Uh, if you're a eunuch, you're not welcome. We do that. We have boundaries around our churches. We have uh, value statements and, and, and we, you know, we post big things up on public media, uh, social media to make it very clear to people they know they're not really welcome. We behave in a way that says we're disgusted with you instead of in a way that says we completely understand and you're very welcome anyway. We shut the door in their faces and we hurl our most loving curses at them. But we must change our perspective. We must see people differently if we are going to be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Instead of saying, when are you coming back to bring judgment and destruction and establish your kingdom? We should just be focused on being witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And witnesses of a love that forgives and a love that heals and a love that restores. Witnesses to a king that feeds those who are hungry and welcomes those who are, di- who are disenfranchised or without a home. And clothes those who are needed and doesn't lock up people with their children indefinitely. We must change our perspective. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Just the very beginning, he says, uh, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And already all of the disciples are sitting there going, mind blown. What do you mean? Our Father? What is this crazy nonsense? You might get to say you're the son of God, so maybe he's your dad, but we have a judge in heaven. We have a judge sitting on a throne who is going to come back and judge. We're waiting for judgment. We're waiting for the, uh, for the glorious retributive violence that will come from heaven. The day of the vengeance of our Lord. And Jesus says, nah, he's, he's a dad. It's our father in heaven. You see, Jesus says, I need you to change your perspective from judge to father. I need you to change your perspective from violence to forgiveness. I need you to change your heart from judgment to love. This is a revelation the church sorely needs right now. We have a father in heaven who longs to embrace his children with love and forgiveness. And he's not a judge who is angry and seeking violence and retribution. And we need to honestly evaluate What has been handed down to us from our parents and our pastors and our Christian culture and ask ourselves, is this consistent with how Jesus treated the most um, marginalised people in his society? The most sinful people in his society? Is my life a reflection of the love expressed by Christ on the cross, dying even for his enemies? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see you as father, not judge. I pray that we would be convicted deeply to act in accordance to the example set by us in Jesus and that any other baggage or judgment or condemnation or, uh, or, or loving curses that we would uh, have floating around inside of us, that you would just take those things away and replace them with your, with your uh, forgiveness and your love and your compassion for, for people instead of your instead of us just carrying around this burden and baggage that, we have, that we've been given. Transform our hearts. Give us a fresh new perspective that we may be witnesses to your love.
Lord, I pray that this church would be a welcome home for people. And that just as this woman had heard that Jesus would be there, that people would hear that Jesus is here and that they would come with whatever trepidation they come with, but they would come nonetheless. And that they would be welcomed and loved in this place. Change our hearts to see uh, the people who are most on the fringe the way that you see them. That we will be a community of compassion and kindness and gentleness. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We still have like 15 minutes here. What I want us to do is I want us to, to get into some groups and I want you to plumb through the depths of your history and come up with at least one example where you believed something and then later had to concede um, that perhaps that wasn't true. Maybe you were a flat earther who came good. Maybe you were a climate denier who realised that, um, that something's wrong. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you have a faith or theological worldview or something that you were given that at some point you, you evaluated it honestly and went, oh, you know what, I've got to change. Because instead of feeling ashamed about where we've been, we need to celebrate the fact that we can mature and grow. And just like the disciples, we can change. They went from, when are you coming to destroy everyone and can we call fire from heaven, to going and dying and for, for a loving cause. They changed. And I, and I believe that we need to do that. Even here, we need to do that. So I want you to talk about that because I want us to get into the habit of embracing change to be more like Christ. So let's, let's break into groups and have a crack at that.